Well, good morning, City Church. Uh, Tabby's already told you who I am. I'm Bodie Sanders, uh, but let me tell you what I do. I am the youth pastor here at City Church, and man, it's always such a joy uh, to get to be on this stage and talk to you guys because I feel like y'all can listen, right? Um, uh, I'm used to teenagers who don't, um, and no, it's not true. They, they, they listen. It just takes them years to finally apply what we teach them, right? Um, anyway, uh, I wanted to just kind of circle back to something that Tabby talked about, and that's the Family 101 class, just real quick. Um, it's been on the heart of our lead pastor, Matt, to, um, to try to partner with parents as best as we possibly can to help, um, help them navigate this crazy world that we live in. And so um, we, we've visited churches and talked with other people in ministry, and the thing that we've kind of realized is that nobody is, nobody just has like a solid plan for this. And so our family ministries team has been like in the kitchen cooking up stuff and really just trying to find the best possible avenues to partner with you. And I really think 101 is going to be a solid launch pad for us as a church um, in this idea of family discipleship and discipling our kids. We say it all the time from this stage, but we're all being discipled by something, right? And so um, don't we and shouldn't we as parents want our children to be discipled by us first and foremost. So again, I want to encourage you if you're an expecting parent, you're raising toddlers, or you've got um, a 17-year-old that's almost out the door, it's never too late um, to, to start in family discipleship. And so um, encourage you again, cc.guy, go down to the upcoming events and click on that Family 101 and get yourself registered. That's your warning, I guess. Um, if you don't, uh, somebody's going to punch you. I'm kidding. That's not going to happen. Uh, let's just get right into this. We're going to continue in our fall series, A Better Story. So on May 3rd, 2007, Rachel and I got up really early in the morning and we loaded into our already loaded down Pontiac Torrent. Um, they don't even make those anymore. Uh, <laughs> you should have seen it. By the time we finally said goodbye to that car, the, the seats that were once a really pretty tan looked camouflage from the amount of spilt milk and fruits and gummy worms and gummy bears. It was disgusting. Um, like legit, I had a guy ask me one time when he got into the seat of my car, like, dude, did you, did you get custom camouflage seats? And I was like, no, bro, you're sitting on years of soured milk. Um, <laughs> so we loaded down into this Pontiac Torrent and we were set out to make the 30 minute drive to St. Francis Hospital to welcome our first child into the world. Now, if you guys know my wife, if you know anything about her, then you know that she doesn't like to be surprised unless that surprise is like me taking her out on a date night, which she's already handed me like the options of two restaurants I can surprise her with. Um, so she doesn't like to be surprised. She wants to be prepared. She wants to have a plan. And so we absolutely knew that we were going to be having a daughter. I think before the doctor knew we were going to be having a daughter. And we also knew the day that our child would come into the world. That means that our pregnancy, her pregnancy, can I say our pregnancy? I didn't have a lot to do with it, right? Um, but but uh, we knew that date, so it was induced. Um, so we get to the hospital and we're checking in. It's about 7.30. I'm thinking it's going to take us 15 minutes or so to get checked into the, into the room that we're going to be in. They're going to hook her up to some machines and probably within the hour, um, I'll be holding my little girl in my arms. That, that, that's what I thought. Um, I, now, here's the thing. I don't 
don't consider myself like to be like overly intelligent. I don't know a lot about many things and I can be a little bit oblivious to the moment at hand at times. And so we're sitting in the room and um, by mid-afternoon, uh, epidural number one had wore off and Rachel was in the process of getting epidural number two when all of a sudden it was go time. Uh, and, and so um, there's just chaos happening in the room. I'm, I'm assuming it was controlled chaos, right? Because um, you guys are professionals. You should know what you're doing. But for me, I'm just like the whole time, like what in the heck is happening in this moment? I am freaking out. I'm looking here and saying, is she okay? And I'm looking back over here. Is she okay? She looks like she's about to die. Um, I can only see a crown of a head. Um, and so uh, anyways, the story goes on. And eventually after what felt like hours of Rachel in labor, all of a sudden we had a, a child and the doctor was holding it in the air. The doctor hands me a pair of scissors in the, in the, the, the delivery room. Like, what am I going to do with these? You need to cut this cord. I'm like, I don't think I, I'm not trained for this. You should cut the cord. I cut it. But the whole time I'm cutting it, I'm like, man, this is like trying to cut through leather. Um, somebody's got to be hurting, hurting right now. Like, is this causing her pain or her pain? Because somebody's got to be hurting here. Um, so the cord gets cut. Ella gets placed on Rachel's chest to hear the heartbeat because apparently that's important, right? And um, after a while... Um, they clean Ella up and they take her and stick her in a little clear basket underneath the hottest lamp you have ever seen. And you're like, I'm pretty sure like it's hotter than the sun. Um, and, and, and at that moment, the door opens and in floods just a, an insane amount of people. Like, like to see our child, like our family and some of our close friends are there. There are people that came from the waiting room because they was like, I think we can come into this room. I mean, this was pre-COVID. So we were just doing everything, coughing in each other's faces and stuff. Like it didn't matter. And so I've got all these people like leaned over uh, this little clear basket and everybody's ooing and awing and just like going, on and on and on about how beautiful my little girl is. All the while, I'm kind of in the back, kind of just like, but is she though? You know? Um, this is horrible. I'm, I'm opening up to you guys. I, I hope this is a safe space, okay? And um, eventually, I lean over to my mom as everybody's telling me how gorgeous my little girl is. And I look at my mom and I just kind of whisper to her like, mom is is her head always going to be shaped like that? <laughs> Again, that's terrible, I know, but y'all should picture it. It was like a normal baby's body with an eggplant on top of the neck, okay? It was just like this long thing, flat face, and a beanie up here, you know? I, 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 was, I, was, I was genuinely worried that I was going to be raising an alien from the movie Aliens. And that's the day as my mom kind of grabbed me very sternly by the shoulder like this, you know, as moms tend to do. And she begins to whisper some things in my ear. And that's the day that I learned about birthing canals, not from a classroom or a book, but from my mom in the labor and delivery room. And I tell you guys this story for a couple of reasons. One, it's fun to look back on my own ignorance as a, as a man. And um, I'll, I'll just go ahead and share this with you too because we're, we're being open and honest. And I feel like this is a safe place. I've shared this story um, in conversation many times, but I have never publicly shared it from a stage. On the day that we were scheduled to take uh, my firstborn child 
home, my father-in-law, who is in this room today, and who I totally blame for this, by the way, um, leans over to me and he's like, hey man, I got your golf clubs in the truck. You want to go golfing? <sighs> I'm like 24, okay? I love to golf. I, I, it's like one of my passions, okay? And so I'm like, lean over to Rachel, who's drugged up, and I'm like, hey, you know, your dad's like got my stuff, and he's wanting me to go golfing with him. I think he wants to talk about something. I don't, I don't know. Um, you think it'd be fine? And she's just like in her drug-induced state, um, like, sure, fine, I guess, whatever. And I took that as like the okay. Now, here's the deal. We had a solid plan. We were going to go golfing, and then we were going to go get everybody's favorite food and get it back to the house by the time my mother-in-law, yes, and my wife got home with my newborn baby child. And we did all of that, but I, I am still living the regret of that moment. I learned a couple of things that day. Expecting fathers, you always take your wife and your kids home, all right? They struggle with the car seat for like 45 minutes. Um, the food that I brought home made Rachel sick and now she'll never eat it again. And so it was like her favorite. Um, so, so expecting fathers, always take your baby and your wife's home. And the second thing that I learned that day is a woman's, mm-hmm, yeah, sure, I guess, almost never actually means no, or yes. It almost never means yes. And so if you can, if you can learn anything today, then learn that. But the real reason I tell you the story about my first child's birth is this. That day, her first hours of existence in that room as my little girl is alertly peering into the eyes of all of the faces of the faint voices that she had been hearing from about her 27th week in the womb, um, as she's looking at them, them looking at her and speaking softly at her was a moment that genuinely shaped my daughter's existence on this planet. Whether we can articulate it or not, whether we can remember that moment or not, and just as an aside, you can't. So if you ever are one of those people that's like, I can remember everything from when, and you, you, you don't. Um, don't be that person. But, um, but whether we can articulate it or not, that moment was a moment that really shaped all of our lives. Not Ella's in the hospital because most of you didn't know her and don't know her and can't point her out in the crowd. And it would have been weird if you would have been there. But your moment, assuming that you had a, a fairly normal birth, your moment as they placed you underneath that lamp that's as hot as the sun is a moment that shaped your existence from then moving on. In his book, the life we long for, author Andy Crouch says, recognition is the primary task of infancy. Feeding, crying, and even sleeping are just the support systems for this most essential work of figuring out who we are and where we are. By making contact with people, seeing them, seeing us, we're gradually beginning to build our sense of self through their eyes. From our first breaths, we have this innate longing for connection and community. And this triggers something inside the young of, youngest of us to recognize and to pick up on traits and tendencies that help to shape the you that you are. And this truth continues as our connections expand and grow over time. We are wired to begin the search for being and belonging within a context that is bigger than ourselves from the very start. We are looking for a village. We are looking for 
our people. And this idea of connection or in a more churchy term, community is one that we have taught on so often from this stage. And there's good reason for that. As pastors, one of the, um, some of the main things that we counsel and pastor people through are, is loneliness and, 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 and this feeling of isolation or, or disconnection or, or hurts that have happened from walking out life in community. There are times that we have to counsel one another on this topic. And so this is the reason why we tend to always come back a couple of times a year to the idea of community within a body of Christ. It's because it's so important that we hear it over and over again. Think liturgically here. Think liturgically about this. The more um, that something enters our temporal lobes and then is processed by our cerebral cortex, the more often or the better chances we have of that something becoming practice. Case in point, I grew up um, living one house down from my mother's mom. We called her Mamaw. And so there were my four si- or me and my three siblings and then a host of cousins who lived in the same area. So we were in and out of Mamaw's house all day every day it felt like. We were just in and out of Mamaw's house. My Mamaw was a very meticulous person. She cleaned her house about 73 times a day. And I can tell you just about every time that I ran into Mamaw's house, I heard something along the lines of this, don't walk through my dirt because my mamma was sweeping in her, on her hard surfaces and there was a pile of dirt on the floor. And so now, because I heard don't walk through that dirt about a million times growing up as a kid, if I enter into a room and I see that there's a broom on the wall, my brain has been conditioned to then look on the ground because somewhere there's probably a pile of dirt that I should avoid at all costs or mamma is gonna come back down from heaven and she's gonna tell me to go pick the switch that I wanna get whipped with. But in the context of what we're talking about today, are we doers of what we hear? I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to urge us to be doers of what we hear in the context of community, community because we've got a vengeful God who's waiting for us to tell us to pick the switch we want to get whipped with when we don't do what we've been told to do. But instead, because we have a loving God who happens to know a little bit about what life is supposed to look like. We have a loving God We must become doers of what we hear. In his letter to the church, James, the brother of Jesus, in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, says this, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Context is important when we look at scripture. So I understand that in this particular passage of scripture, James isn't directly like coming at us with the idea of community, but he is speaking to a gathered body of believers in Jesus Christ who are worshiping that Jesus in the context of community. And I think that there is some spirit-inspired truth here that says like in any and all aspects of scripture, we should be hearers and we 
should be doers. So we can hear uh, messages on the importance of community, but are we doers? Do we allow what we hear to become what we do? Or maybe even better put, do we allow what we hear, see, and read to become who we are as a people? As a body of believers in 2022 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, are we allowing what we hear to become who we actually are in the context of Scripture? With that in mind, let's talk about something. This whole series is all about a better story. So for there to be a better story, then there has to be a lesser story, right? And so what is the lesser story about us as created beings within the context of community. The lesser story says it's about me. It's about my wants, my desires, ahead and above everything else. The lesser story is about personal preference over the difficult way of togetherness. And this idea of personal has grown exponentially over the past 15 or so years with the advent of the personal device that really took off in 2007 with the introduction of the iPhone. We have become more and more inside ourselves. Again, this This is the lesser story to be inside ourselves. This isn't how we were created. God has a far better design for us than this. And yet too often, this is what we choose with the whole of our lives to be insular, to be islands unto ourselves, drifting aimlessly, untethered to anyone or anything. Living into the lesser story may seem safe, but the science is now out and the data doesn't look real great. We are more stressed, depressed, lonely, and out of touch as a society than we've ever been. And you may think that something that we've walked, to, walked through recently, like a pandemic and COVID with its isolation and its lockdowns that came with it might have been the cause, but that was just the tip of the iceberg. Underneath the surface, this has been growing for decades in our lives. Below the surface is all the negative aspects um, in our culture, and, and it's all about despair, and that has so many of us wanting to completely and fully check out. And again, I say not God's design for you and I. This is not the way that God wired us. We will get here in a few weeks, but God's design is a partnering with humanity for the flourishing of the earth in every aspect. And again, we're gonna get there, but that partnering with us is a collective us. It's not just a a, a you or the individual, but it's a partnering with all of us to see the flourishing of the world. So then what's the better story? What is the better story then? The better story is life lived within God's kingdom and design, which requires all of us, not just a few of us, but all of us, in community. Again, you've heard every message that you probably need to hear on community. So you've probably heard this touched on before, but I want to take you back to this truth that we find in the beginning of it all. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 says this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So I want you guys to allow me a moment to nerd out here. Okay, can y'all, can y'all give me just a little bit of time for that? Before there was ever such a thing 
as time, God existed in what really smart people call the triune community we call the Godhead, three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. This God then says, let us create man in our own image, which is pretty cool, right? That's pretty baller. We were created in the image of the creator, but not to be outdone is this thought of in his likeness or to be like God. And, and again, we go back to this thought that, that this God that created all things lived in perfect, harmonious community within himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. Not just casual community. That's not what they had. It was perfect and it was deep. We have written within our spiritual DNA a desire for community with depth and substance. Community with a little bit of meat on its bones, right? That's what we're wired with. That's what's written inside of us. But too often we tend to fall back to the lesser story. We go within ourselves, and can I tell you, like, being with self, and guys, we've had this conversation. You and I have had this conversation. Even when we're with ourselves, we're still in community. The only problem is it's a community of you and you, and we are our own worst enemies. We say some of the worst things that anybody would ever say to anybody to who? Ourselves, right? And so it's written into our DNA to live into the better story. The author of Genesis takes it a step further. In Genesis chapter two, it says this, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. It's as if God knew from the very beginning, aloneness wasn't a good option for you and I. Like we weren't created for aloneness. We weren't created for isolation. We were created for community. The better story we should all be living into is a life in community, a life of laying down our preferences and plans for the others in our life. Shortly after the creation narrative, we find the fall narrative, and this fall narrative is where things go awry and get a little bit sideways. It's in this moment that, that people start to write their own plans for their lives, their own decisions. They get away from the playbook of God and begin to write their own story. And so God then sets apart a people a people that is supposed to be a beacon of hope for the world to see. This is what life looks like under the rule and the reign of the creator God. But these people, instead of taking on that mantle of being a light and a hope for the nations, a set apart people, they decide that in their pride and in their arrogance, because they were chosen by God, they decide that it's going to be us versus other. Us versus other. And this continues on for centuries. And there's wars and there's, there's, there's more wars and there's battles and there's people taken into captivity and all of these ugly things that come from life lived in the lesser story, not in the better story, but the lesser story until this radical young rabbi comes along the scene and he says, I have a better way. I have the way. And it's the way. And it's a life about others. 
In John, the Gospel of John, we find um, chapters 13, 14, 15, um, 16, I think even maybe 17, what we call the upper room discourse, where Jesus is in his final moments with his disciples, his closest of followers, and he's teaching them all sorts of amazing, amazing things. And Jesus says something to his disciples in John 13, 34, and 35, and they won't have this on the screen. That's my bad, Cody. A new commandment is what Jesus says, I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. But this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you have love for one another. And then in John 15, Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And these words from Jesus say it pretty plainly, right? We want to be friends with Jesus, then we, we are, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to love one another. And these one another statements that, that, that Jesus gives us in this moment, this idea of loving one another then kicks off a whole litany of one another's in the New Testament. I think there's 59 of them total. And some of them sound a little bit like this, honor one another above yourself, serve one another in love, be patient, bearing with one another in love, be kind and compassionate to one another. Encourage one another daily, love one another deeply from the heart, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And that's just a handful of them right there, guys. I've got 30 plus more right here that I could read to you if we wanted to take the time to do that. And like I said, there's 59 of them in the New Testament. And the point is this, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not call us away from the other in our lives. It calls us to one another in our lives. It's the idea of community, again, written within us from the beginning, from the Genesis, from creation. It was written into our lives that we are to be a people that, that strive for community with one Another. We lean into community not because it's easy and ultimately not because if we lean into it, our lives will somehow be fuller, but because that's what life within the better story looks like. And it's what we're called to. John Tyson once said that the gathered body of Jesus Christ, those who live in his kingdom under his rule, are a creative minority. And then he went on to define a creative minority by saying, a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. And man, I love that. It's a web of stubbornly loyal relationships. I know a handful of really stubborn people in my life, and that, that word carries a lot of negative connotations, this whole idea of stubborn. I, I don't bend. I'll never break. I'm stubborn. But, but when put in this context, that idea of stubbornly loyal relationships, like that's the kind of relationship I want. And I feel like that's the kind of community that God calls the church to. Man, we're stubbornly loyal to one another. 
So what does a community like this look like? What should we as City Church, the gathered body of Jesus Christ, here to worship our risen Savior, what should this kind of community look like? We should be a community that will risk for one another. A community that will risk for one another. I, I, I was thinking about this as I was writing these out, and, and I, I was reminded of our Seed Network church planners who are planting churches right now. They're, they're in the throes of it. And man, I think back to my own season of planting churches, and I can only imagine that these pastors are going into random people's houses and sitting down and having cups of coffee and sharing their vision for this church. And, and, and there's other people that are on the other side of the coffee table, and they're like, you know what? I'm going to be willing to risk and enter into community with you. I'm gonna risk it all and I'm gonna go with you to plant this church. I think about risk and I think about you, City Church. I think about what we have gone through over the last several weeks with this whole For Our City campaign. Risk is saying, you know what? I'm gonna sign up to serve. And you know what you find when you sign up to serve? When we begin to risk like that, you find community. You find people that are just like you that are going, I don't understand why I'm doing this. I'm, I'm risking a lot here because I've got, I've got time that I, I don't really have a lot of and, and, and energy that I don't really have a lot of, but you know what? I'm gonna risk it because I feel like this is important. You find other people just like that. You're risking in your giving to the vision of God to see our new building and, and, and you're looking out with, with hope, yes, but there's risk involved in that. Hope that God is gonna use that for just unbelievable things to happen, life change through Jesus Christ to happen, to see the gospel transform the lives of so many people in the community that we're gonna get to be a part of, but there's still risk in that. Could we be a community that continues to risk for one another? We should be a community that will refresh one another, a community that will refresh one another. This involves us being intimately involved in one another's lives. And, and, and I know we have a big church. It's not a huge church and it's a, it's a big church though. And we might not be able to know everybody, but man, we can all know somebody. And as we get to know one another, then we get to pick up on the cues and the, and the context and in the middle of conversation. And we, and, and we can hear when somebody might be going through it a little bit or somebody might be worn out just a little bit. And then we can come alongside one another with uplifting words to speak life and hope into one another. Like, can we be a community that refreshes one another? Thirdly, we should be a community that will encourage one another. A community that will encourage one another. Again, this cannot happen. On the deepest of levels, something like this cannot happen if we don't know one another. You see, it's easy for me to look at somebody and say, oh man, you're amazing, you're awesome. But that, at the end of the day, that might be true. It might not be true. I'm just really nice, I think, and I tell everybody they're awesome. But, 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 on the, uh, but when we get into community, when we find stubbornly loyal relationship, it's then that I can say, I have taken the time to get to know you. 
And because I've taken the time to get to know you, I can start to see the way that God has wired you, the way that God has gifted you for the church, for the gathered body. And then I can begin to encourage you into taking the steps in that direction. Can we be a church that will encourage one another, a church that fights for one another? A church that looks at the couple whose marriage is struggling and saying, no, this isn't okay, I'm gonna fight for you. A church that looks at the person who's giving themselves over to things that they shouldn't be and saying, no, this isn't okay, I'm going to fight for you. A church that looks at the sick and the broken and saying, this isn't the way God meant for it to be. And so I'm gonna hit my knees and I'm gonna fight for you. 2015, 2016, my father, who is just a pillar in our family, a deacon at his church is there to serve at any point in time. Um, One weekend, he's out running my uh, 12, 13 year old nephew in a foot race. And the next weekend, his body is swollen up and we have no idea what's going on. After a handful of blood tests and trips to various doctors, we found out that my dad had stage four liver cirrhosis. And it was to a point where like, if he doesn't get a transplant, he doesn't have much longer to live. I can remember very vividly uh, a, a Tuesday evening, we were at my mom and dad's house and the pastors, the deacons and the elders of the church that my mom and dad attend showed up to my parents' house unannounced I'm so thankful that I was able to be there to be a part of this, but I watched as these gathered men begin to come around my father and pray and sob and weep and anoint him with oil. And and it was just so beautiful to see. And in that moment, I realized this is what community looks like, that fight for one another. I see you at your deepest, darkest despair, and I'm gonna be there with you. And when you don't have the strength, I'll have the strength. Can we be a community that fights for one another? Lastly, a community that is willing to tell the truth to one another. A community that's willing to tell the truth to one another. A pastor friend of mine once, said to me, and I I thought it was pretty cool. He was like, do you wanna know where true depth and relationship and community comes from? He was like, in my years, I've noticed a lot of people, a lot of people are willing to share a little bit about their hurt, a little bit about their brokenness. He's like, I've, he said, funny enough, I've not met many people that will be completely honest about their hopes, about their dreams for the future. He said, but all, all, all across the board, very few people are willing to go all the way. Pastor Matt talks about this all the time. That last 7%, that last 3%. Are we willing to be a church that's completely open and completely honest with one another? Can I tell you the truth about me and trust that, that you will have my best interest at heart? 
can I trust that, that you will look at me and my life and say, You're, you, you might be off course. And, and I feel like this might be the way that God wants to bring you back on course because we're in community together, because I know you love me. Could we be a church that's willing to tell the truth to one another? Stubbornly loyal relationships that are knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. All of this takes work. It's not easy. And there will at times be pain. But on the other side of that work, as we choose to work through the hurt and the pain, there is what we've longed for from the beginning, community relationship and knowing and being known. And that type of community paints a picture for the world to see. And what they see is a people who look different because they serve a savior and they follow what he taught. We look longingly at the beginning of life for faces and listen for voices to help set our course in a good, right trajectory. And at the end of life, it's not that much different. I've had the honor to be in rooms and at bedsides of people who are living in their final moments. And you can always tell the ones who, although not perfect, not perfect by a long shot, committed to live a life the way that God had designed it. People flooding the rooms, nurses and doctors saying, man, there's just something different about that one. And here's something that in all my time in rooms like that, here's something that I know to be true, is at the end of our lives, we're going to be scanning the room for the, for the faces, for the faces and the voices of all of the connections that we've made over the years, family, friends, pastors, church community. We're gonna be looking for those faces as a reminder of what my life has been, what, what I've looked like, a reminder of all of the good, all of the bad, all of the sad, all of the hilarious that makes us who we are. You see, instinctively, we search for people in the beginning to help set our course, and it's the people in the end that remind us what that course was, but it's the middle that we have to work on and with wisdom and discernment, make choices to give ourselves to others and allow others to give themselves to us. Would you stand with me this morning? You should have received communion elements as you came in this morning. Go ahead and prepare those right now. We're about to, in this act of breaking bread and taking the cup, we're about to remember what Christ has done for us. And on so many levels, this act of remembrance that we do every week, it's very personal because we realize 
If you are found in Christ, then you have realized that I was dead in my sin and my trespass, and Christ came and died to bring me salvation. It's very personal in so many ways, but it's also very communal. It's very much about us. See, Christ came and died and rose again to establish something brand new, a new people, a new kind of people. And that's you and that's me and that's all of us. In a way, Christ died to give us community. And he brings us together in this cup, this bread, for all of our differences, for everything that should cause us to separate, this is greater. This is greater. The blood, the body and the blood of Christ is more than enough to unite us, to draw us towards one another. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gathered in an upper room with his closest friends and he sat around the table and he took the bread and he lifted it up to heaven. He blessed it and then he broke it and passed that bread around the table and said, this is my body broken for you. Can we take the body of our savior today? like manner after supper it says that Jesus took the cup and he said this cup represents my blood blood of a new covenant no longer do you need bulls goats pigeons doves to cover your sins for a, a, a little while but this blood is sufficient to wash your sin away and leave you white as snow we take the cup today together take just a few seconds to thank him. thank you for your body that was broken, for your blood that was poured out. To eradicate the wages of sin that equal death. Jesus, we thank you that your blood 
your sacrifice on that cross says that we all have at least one common denominator and it's that we can't do it on our own we need you we needed your perfect sacrifice to have relationship with the father to each and every one of us be called sons and daughters of God once we were enemies and now we are sons and daughters Jesus, I pray that it would be our desire to live into your better story, to live into this understanding that we are your people, that I am not some island unto my own, but I am a part of a web of stubbornly loyal relationships. that you have gifted us with one another to walk out this life with one another. I pray that we would be hearers and doers, God, and that we would be a people that by the way we interact with each other would show the world that there is a different way, a better way, your way of doing life. Holy Spirit, this isn't something that we can do on our own strength. We need you, so would you come now? We invite you into this space to do a work on our hearts. Do a work on our hearts. Convict us and draw us. Draw us closer to Jesus and closer to one another. And Jesus, it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. City Church, thanks for listening to me there for a few minutes. Um, just a couple of quick things. If you're a first-time guest with us, then we want to greet you, say hello right across the lobby. Our lead pastor will be there, wants to give you a free gift. Um, want to take a, chance, a moment and invite our prayer team down, any of our elders in the room, uh, staff members. If you need prayer for anything, um, you're invited to come. Uh, they would love to, to pray over you. They love you. They're already praying for you. And so this is an opportunity to have that done in person. Um, that's pretty much all I've got for you this morning, I think. So let's end with our mission statement and go live it out wherever you are. Be the gospel. Love you guys.